Welcome to the Vulture TV Podcast. I'm your host, Gazelle Amami. On this week's show, we're talking the best TV shows of 2016. Later, we'll be joined by Ray McKinnon, the creator of Rectify, which aired its series finale last week. I'm here with New York Magazine TV critic Matt Solar Seitz. Hello, Gazelle. Hello, Matt. And we have Vulture TV columnist Jen Cheney. Hello. Hello, Jen. Hello. <laughs> so, yeah, can you believe it's the end of the year, guys? It's ridiculous. <laughs> and yet, thank, thank, thank Father God, God, Sonny Jesus, Yahweh, and the Great Pumpkin that it's finally over. I don't know. I'm already sick of 2017. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, before we get into all that, um, it's, it's time for this week's prompt. And last week we talked about our favorite TV moments. This week our producers are asking us, you know, since we're talking about the best TV shows of the year, why not start off with the worst? What was your least favorite TV show in 2016? You know, I've done a pretty good job of successfully avoiding things that I don't like. Mm-hmm. Like, like if there's no, if there's nothing in it that I particularly want to write about, I, I, I generally don't want to spend a whole lot of my time on it. But there are certain shows that I'm compelled to uh, keep track of because they're popular. And uh, one of them is The Walking Dead, and I don't like The Walking Dead. This is this is a matter of public record. It just everyone knows this about me. I, I don't like The Walking Dead. I think I, I've had I call it a bad relationship show where I was trying to get out of that relationship for the first three or four years, and finally I pulled the bandaid off, and that was the end for me. But I still have to watch the show just because you got to have an opinion on The Walking Dead. And every time I catch back up with it, I'm sorry that I did. And that and that first episode back with Negan. Uh, which was basically just an hour of sort of power trip sadism disguised as something else. Uh, disgusted me. I hated it. And and in retrospect, uh, like the fact that it was so ridiculously popular, you know, when I criticized it, I got I got a lot of more pushback than I ever really? get from any. Oh God, yeah, like it went on for a, lot a week. Of support too. Yeah, but it was it was far outweighed by people wow. saying, you know, suck it up, Buttercup. You just can't well, handle the violence, which is weird considering that Hannibal was my number one I show know. for two years in a row. Like it wasn't the violence itself that well, bothered me; it was the the sort of cynically toxic worldview of the people making the show. And I, I also think people who read the comic books get offended because they say, you know, the comic books are just as violent and this is exactly what happens in the comic books. But I think the way The Walking Dead toys with us is a little disturbing, just in in terms of how the first even 20 minutes of that episode is just kind of teasing you in terms of not even knowing who is dead and making you think that every single person could have possibly died. And just the, the way they toy with you is kind of it just leaves a bad feeling in your stomach in terms of like what the point of all of this is. It just reminded me of like an older sibling taking away a younger sibling stuffed animal and punching it and saying, look, it's crying. Mm-hmm. That was that was like the mentality of that show. And it's been the mentality of that show for a while. And I'm not saying it has no redeeming qualities, but the downsides of it just outweigh everything for me. And, and I'm disturbed actually that it's so popular because I find it to be empty, largely empty. Right. Yep. Anyway. Yeah, I do a, a radio segment on a St. Louis station once a week, and the host of that show loves The Walking Dead, so he always tries to bring it up. Oh, and no. in fact, this week he brought it up again, and I think he actually said something to the effect of, like, what could be better than someone you know, beating people up with a baseball bat on television? I'm like, oh, hopefully a lot, um, because <laughs> oh my God. I got nothing to say about that. Well, again, I feel like we should specify, like, it's not an, It's not just the fact that it's brutal, that's not it. I feel like I have to say that it's not it, that's not it, that's not it, like, until it becomes a song. 
Um, it's it's just it's it's just, it's the, it's just the, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah you know like there's not much going on that I mean I also watched that show for about four seasons and then I you know it just at a certain point it's not adding anything new and if anything I think its worldview is becoming more problematic no and I felt like that you know towards the end I was a little bit bullish or at least hopeful on Westworld at the beginning but then when once we got to the end I sort of started to feel like it was kind of like the walking dead with a graduate degree in semiotics (laughs) (laughs) that's great Jen how about you well I'll talk about something that is brutal in its own way and that was the day that I watched the first episode of Kevin Can Wait oh god (laughs) Oh, dear. Uh, which was, you know, a 25-minute episode, and like five minutes in, I'm like, oh, my God, is this over? Is this over yet? Uh, you know, it's just, it's, and it's doing well enough, and it'll probably be on for 10 years. Uh, and I don't even have anything against Kevin James personally at all, but it's just so unimaginative and so retrograde and so a lot of sexist stuff kind of embedded in it. And I just, it was really the hardest 25 minutes of television viewing that I had this year. The Great Outdoors is probably the single. Oh. The pilot for The Great Outdoors is probably the most annoyed I've been by a, a, a single half hour of a sitcom this year. That's the Joel McHale. Yeah, show. it was just like it was like a half an hour of like, uh, you know, uh, oversexed macho guy surrounded by clueless millennials, and it really didn't get any better as it went yeah. along. I, you know, I like you, Matt. I I don't spend too much time with a show if I decide I it's just not for me. Um, unless I have to watch it for my job. And I think the shows that I thought of with this prompt are more shows that I had high expectations for and that disappointed me Mm. and that because of that, I ended up feeling worse about them just because I wanted them to be so good. And that would be the night of... Oh, I know where you're going with this. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The night of Unreal and uh, Mr. Robot, though... I think I was a little bit more um, personally upset by Unreal just because I I really loved that show in its first season. and It was like, what happened? Yeah. What happened? So, yeah, I think, and with The Night Of, you know, I think that the first episode I was so drawn in and it was such an excellent episode of television that I think with that it was more that I just got bored as it went on and then also a little bit offended by the sexism of the show. Yeah. And, that that was enough to to kind of turn me off of that. It actually wasn't where I thought you were going. Oh yeah? I thought you were going to complain about Gilmore Girls again. Oh my god, I was going to complain about Gilmore Girls again. <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> well, let's throw that in there too. No, it's yeah, that's definitely. Although I will say with Gilmore Girls, I did not have high expectations because okay, yeah. I'm so just have been trained to not get my hopes up for reboots. Yeah, you've kind of got a raised eyebrow for every announcement of a reboot, I've noticed. Mm -hmm. So it it doesn't really, I don't get this like, oh my God, it's going to be so great feeling. So so yeah, with Gilmore Girls, I was a little bit, but it was probably the show that made me feel the most bummed out of any show this year. You seem genuinely, (laughs) genuinely saddened that you didn't like that. I was a genuine, I was a hardcore fan of that show. I watched that when I was 16, and I like have rewatched every episode of it at least five times. Yeah. And I don't know. I don't. Th- I think a lot of people who love the show that much did like the reboot, but it just felt like a weird reanimated corpse to me, <laughs> and I just didn't. Wow. It made me feel really weird. 
It's 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 basically it's The Walking Dead yeah. all over again, <laughs> yeah. but with but with more attractive sweaters. <laughs> yeah, I mean we've had a lot of great TV this year, luckily. Yeah, so I think so it too. Been too much of a a problem for the most part, and we we're going to get to that in just a moment, listeners. If you would like to weigh in on this week's prompt, or if you'd like to suggest a future prompt. You can email us at tvquestions at vulture.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673. So let's move on to, to the best shows of the year, shall we? Oh, we shall. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how good was this year, guys? I mean, if we were looking at TV, it was a pretty good year. I straight up yeah. said in my, at the top of my 10 best list, this is the single best year for scripted television since I have been alive. How? It's unbelievable. I mean, I, I like, and my editor at the magazine, Lane Brown, uh, said, uh, you, you, you have to limit it to 10. I was like, look, this year of any other years, can you let me go to 20? He's like, no. <laughs> and, and I felt like I was like deciding who gets on the lifeboat when the Titanic was yeah. sinking. Like, they were, I mean, any, I swear to God, like, almost all of the, like, all but maybe two of the shows in my top 10, I could have randomly tossed them off the list and stuck in another from the bottom 30, and I would have been perfectly happy with mm-hmm. myself. That's that's how consistently high the level of quality was. Even the stuff that wasn't, like, perfect or c- c- totally consistent from week to week was amazing. And, like, I was telling a friend of mine, like, you know, I, one of the things that I people have said about me and I've kind of said about myself is I think I'm a little bit harder on the gifted kids. You know, mm-hmm. like in my reviews, like uh, Mr. Robot and Westworld and other shows that are really, really ambitious and are trying to do like five or six really difficult things well at the same time. I tend to be a little harsher on them than the shows that are kind of more simplistic, but they're nailing it. Mm-hmm. But that said, like if this were f- 10 or even five years ago, I think Mr. Robot and Westworld would have been on the list. You know, yeah, just 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 for sheer, you know, because they're like, as I said, their mistakes are more interesting than a lot of shows uh, Mm -hmm. successes. Um, And, uh, you know, there was the and there were many series, there were movies, there were half hour traditional three camera sitcoms. And there were things like uh, Better Things in Atlanta and Horace and Pete. What the hell was that? (laughs) I mean, and I say that in the best possible way. That was in my top ten. Um, there well, were so many things where you could you struggled even to classify what you were looking at, which is very high praise. When I was making my list, I mean, I felt like even if you had asked me 20 minutes after I finished it, I could have made it again slightly differently and it would have been no less valid because yeah. every single show, so many of them could belong on there. And there's such a thin margin between what is great and what is the greatest that it's really, really hard to, to narrow it down like this. Well, Matt and Jen, I'd love for you both to to take us through your lists. Jen, you want to take it away and just read us your straight top ten list? Yes, I will read the titles uh, to you, starting starting at the top uh, with American Crime Story, The People vs. O.J. Simpson, Veep, The Americans, Atlanta, BoJack Horseman, Better Things, Better Call Saul, the Good Place, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, and Casual. Mm, okay, so my top ten. Uh, number one show was Atlanta. Number two was The Girlfriend Experience, The Stars Show. Number three, I cheated and did a tie. Uh, American Crime Story, The People vs. O.J. Simpson, the scripted miniseries, and O.J. Simpson Made in America, the epic ESPN nonfiction series. Number four was BoJack Horseman, season three. 
Uh, number five was the fourth season of The Americans, which I think was uh, the best of the four seasons, which is really saying something. Number six, I had Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. And it's some small measure of what a great year of TV this has been. That the I, I called that the best show on the air, and it, came, it ended up coming in at number six <laughs> on my list. <laughs> number seven was Stranger Things, which uh, we'll get to, I hope, in more detail because I adore that show. Number eight, Rectify, which just finished its fourth season. And... Uh, I think went out on a high note. Number nine, Horace and Pete, the uh, show that only appeared on LouisCK.net, and you had to order it and download it. Um, what a what a completely uh, just not like anything else thing I've seen. And then uh, number ten was the Search Party, the TBS series, which was like, boy, uh, I wish they'd released that earlier in the year because they messed up my list. I, like, I had my list all, like, yeah. pretty much cemented, and then I saw a search party, and it's like, all right, I got to kick something out of my top <laughs> ten to make room for this. I mean, that's the other thing, you know? We're making, there's still shows that, that are coming out, and obviously most people make their lists around early December, mid-December, but, you know, there's still shows that come out in those last couple weeks of December at this point. Not that maybe they'd end up or not, but... I remember last year, Master of None came out, like, right yeah, as, it did. after or as people were writing lists and people kind of freaked out. Didn't, wasn't it season... And Making a Murderer, too. Right, and wasn't... Yeah, that se- was after, se- yeah. yeah. Wasn't season one or two of Transparent, didn't it come out yeah, late in the year? Yeah, that also came out late, so yeah. people missed the top ten list. I, I don't have a top ten list, but I did note down a few shows that um, have not already been mentioned on your list that I also liked and thought deserved mention and one of which is girls which i thought had one of its best seasons yeah this year insecure the new hbo show from Issa ray jane the virgin which i just think continues to be great at mixing human stories with soap opera tropes queen sugar uh i i particularly like the feeling of watching this show it has such a slow patient feel to its filmmaking and yeah. it's just a gorgeous show to watch yeah uh high maintenance I loved the web series, and I think I was I was just really impressed by how they kept the real core of it when they transferred it to HBO and also broadened it into telling types of stories that they didn't even tell in their web series run. So you just, it almost became better to me. And then finally, Younger, which is just, I think, is a great TV rom-com and is kind of my ideal form of escapist television. Right. So, Yeah. That's a lot of TV, guys. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so do we want to maybe go through some of these well, shows I individually? Do, I do think there are a few shows that, you know, Jen and Matt overlapped on your list that are kind of recognized, I think, have been recognized as kind of a step above the rest as kind yeah. of great shows. One of which is probably Atlanta, People versus O.J. Simpson. Mm-hmm. What else kind mm-hmm. of sticks out is those shows that kind of feel like everyone kind of agreed these were great and different from other things on TV and will probably be winning awards I would next think year. I think the Americans actually has a shot yeah. next year because Game of Thrones <clears throat> I believe will not be eligible oh that's right, right. so I think there's ho- actually yeah. hope I mean Ooh. maybe maybe not to sweep or anything but they what might finally think? get a couple of uh, actual awards as opposed to nominations but what uh, about s- yeah I guess so I, I wonder if stranger things could win. Well, you know, that yeah, could happen because, you know, if Game of Thrones keeps winning year after year, Stranger Things hits that, you know, all things to all people sweet yeah. spot. So it does, but it's also a genre show. And, and Emmy, generally speaking, hasn't always been kind cotton to yeah, sci-fi, I mean, horror I feel stuff. Like, I feel like Game of Thrones has kind of just destroyed Changed that. The game. Yeah, I think yeah. I think the yeah. common wisdom is out the window now. 
Unless it's a case where once, uh, you know, something becomes popular enough, people don't consider it genre anymore. And I think there may be some truth to that, too. Yeah. Like uh, the Godfather movies, uh, uh, almost immediately after their release, nobody talked about them as gangster films. They talked mm-hmm. about them as dramas. Right. You know, right, and I think right. Game of Thrones is the same thing. It's not like the sword and sorcery series Game of Thrones. It's like, no, they call it the drama. Right. I... I, I think it would be nice to talk, you know, a little bit about dramas versus comedies this year. Hmm. And, you know, we had a question from a listener, Don Mitchell. He said, I know you've discussed Flea, Fleabag, another another great show that I I don't think we've mentioned yet. I know. Yeah. That's the kind of year this was. <laughs> yeah. She's like, oh, there's another one. Uh, I know you've discussed Fleabag and Better Things in brief, which are both excellent. But I've also been surprised by the likes of The Good Place, Speechless, and American Housewife in particular. And I'm looking forward to getting into People of Earth and Nightcap. I wonder how you guys rate this year against the last couple of years, especially when competing against the likes of Fresh Off the Boat, The Goldbergs, and Blackish, all of which have become firm favorites. Hmm. I mean, we have talked talked a bit on the show about how comedy has kind of started to become the stronger form in television. Yeah, I've actually wrote a pair of articles this year, one which said that really most of the really interesting creative action in scripted TV is happening in the half hour. I didn't even call it a comedy. I call it a comedy in theory. Yes. Because these are the kinds of shows where, like, a lot of people, if you say, hey, go watch... Something like Insecure or or, uh, Girls or High Maintenance or Better Things or Atlanta, they may come back to you and go, why why do you call that a comedy? I didn't laugh that much. Right. You know? And and in fact, there's a line in uh, Difficult People, in season two of Difficult (laughs) People, there's actually one of the characters says, like, it just blurts out, like, general discussion of, uh, a general expression of disgust. When did the comedy become a half-hour drama? (laughs) Right. (laughs) It's true. I mean... But there's a lot of flavors of half-hour uh, comedy and comedy in theory, and there is truth to the idea that sometimes a half-hour show is just a drama. Girlfriend Experience was half-hour, and that was right. un- unquestionably that was mainly a drama. You know, a very dark one at times. Yeah, and Matt, you also wrote a piece about kind of the serial drama slump. Yeah, and... there wasn't very much happening in the serial drama this year that I thought was remotely as interesting as what was happening on a lot of these half-hour shows. And 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 I keep coming back to Louis. Louis is the progenitor of a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, Louis, Louis was never that popular show uh, with a mass audience, but it was one that was very closely watched by um, critics and people in the industry who make TV. And, and not just people who actively had shows in production, but people who always wanted to have their own show but didn't think it was possible because their idea was too weird. Mm-hmm. And here was Louis, Louis C.K. week after week making you, you know, doing these things where you were like, what? I didn't know you could do that. What? I didn't know you could do that. <laughs> and it embarrassed Golden people. Yeah. And now there's a whole constellation of these half-hour shows. And it's not like everybody's trying to do their own version of Louie. All they're taking from that is just the laboratory feeling, mm-hmm. you know, where it's like it's like an experiment. It's like every week we're going to do a series of experiments. Some of them will work. Some of them don't. And not only is that okay, audiences actually expect it. Yeah. And, you know, back to Don's question, too, about whether, you know, how this compares to the last couple of years, I, I do think that we're seeing maybe – a slight increase in smart comedies because networks are prioritizing them too. Mm. You know, we saw ABC doing that with Fresh Off the Boat, Blackish, mm-hmm. The Goldbergs, uh, and then Speechless this year. But then TBS is also getting in the game. You have Search Party, People of Earth, Angie Tribeca, which wasn't really for me, but a lot of people like that show. 
And, the, you know, you can kind of now have a sense of what a TBS comedy is, which is kind of quirkier. And that is right. something recognizable. And FX also, you know, they ha- usually kept their comedies on their niche comedies on FX. FXX, which you had Always Sunny, Man Seeking Woman. Right. But now they're adding to their kind of Louis-esque comedies with Atlanta and Better Things. Yes. And, you know, HBO, for the first time in a while, added more comedies, Divorce, High Maintenance, and Insecure. Right. And and I really think some of this, and I, I, I feel like I said this maybe on a previous podcast, but some of it is just experimentation with form like you're talking about, but some of it is just a practical matter, which is it is a lot easier for people to fit in a half-hour show uh, given the n- amount of television there is out there. And so for practical reasons, like there's something, at least for me, if I'm going to sit down and watch something on the off chance that I'm not watching it for work, which is like never, uh, but I-, I feel like I have the time to watch 25 minutes or a half-hour or something, or maybe even two of them, whereas if I'm, I'm going to watch an hour drama, I get in one maybe if I'm lucky. Uh, and so I, I wonder to what extent that's playing into it, too. Well, it's also, yeah, so. it's also the difference between a short story. You know, the difference between a half-hour show, an hour show, and a movie is the difference between a short story, a novella, and a, and a novel, a full-blown mm-hmm. novel. And, uh, and you know, and, of course, a series itself is often compared to a novel for television. But I, one of the things I love about shows like, you know, as different as they are, something like, you know, Better Things... Atlanta, the girlfriend experience, part of part of the thrill for me as somebody who is kind of into form, as a form geek, is what are they going to do with these 22 minutes or these 25 minutes that they've got? Yeah. What are they going to favor? They're going to leave some things out. They're going to be some characters you don't see. They might choose to focus entirely on one character. They might tell an entire story from the point of view of, like, for example, a dog, as they did on High Maintenance. Um and and it's fun and it's like there's something like it reminds me of like reading this modernist fiction by uh, somebody like a uh, uh, Charles Portis or Raymond Carver like minimalist mm. kind of writing. It's more you know? surprising and yeah. that's what I particularly liked about Atlanta was that every episode felt different and yet you also had a through line mm-hmm. that kind of carried you through and I uh, I yeah I just I think it it's a combination of being seeing things done in a different way that is just interesting because it doesn't feel like the same old thing again and also like you said the the time the time constraints just add i think people are forced to maybe be a little bit more creative because on the drama side you're having things kind of bloat more where they're approaching an hour long per episode or more or more sometimes it's just it's a lot to sit down and binge well and also they don't always use their time wisely right they don't always use their time wisely and that's and i've noticed i've become like i'm i'm starting to annoy myself i complain about this so much but there's so many times where i'm watching a show you know whether it's a full hour or it's 44 minutes with commercials i feel like they don't it didn't they they don't need this much time to tell the story like i feel i feel them running out the clock i feel them padding it right and i'm not talking about a show where they'll like let you live inside a moment and and not leave it like that uh, incredible episode of uh, horace and pete that started with like a six or seven minute monta uh, a monologue by laurie metcalf Mm -hmm. that was done in an unbroken close-up like i'm not talking about that where they're just they're being really daring and how they express themselves i'm talking about just sometimes you just feel like they're clearing their throat like the show is like it's like now the show's going to clear its throat for 10 minutes 20 minutes or or a whole episode in yeah. some cases and it's uh, and it's like there's so much like if there wasn't so much on tv i don't think i would be as hyper aware of that 
as right. I, you know, I'm certainly more aware of it than I used to be. And you don't get that as much on a show like People versus O.J. Simpson because it's a mm-hmm. miniseries with a very specific story to tell mm-hmm. and a, an amount of time to tell it in. And, and, and just, they shift the emphasis from episode to episode. Mm-hmm. So you get a Marsha Clark episode. You get a, a uh, an episode from the point of view of the jury. You get an episode of, you know, Johnny Cochran is the focus of one of them. And so it's it's that's that's another way they keep things fresh. It's not the same show every week. It it is, and yet it's also a different show. Yeah, I thought we could maybe talk about you know some some other some trends maybe that we've seen this year on television. I think if you can call us a trend, I mean we've seen more shows with black leads on them this year than I I don't know. I haven't seen as many kind of auteur esque. TV shows no. with not only black leads but black showrunners, and you know Atlanta, yeah. Insecure, Queen Sugar, all these shows kind of bring bring this sort of specificity to the black experience, but also universality. And also the Carmichael Show, Blackish, yeah, yeah, and Pitch, Pitch, yeah. Um, so I feel like you know that has been kind of a groundbreaking moment in television this year. It was just kind of seeing all these amazing new shows from from points of views that are not the standard white point of view we usually get on, right. on television. I mean, that's the that's the beauty of having this many different platforms is that there are just so many more vehicles for people to get a show on the air or streaming or something. Whereas, you know, back in the day when it was just NBC, ABC, CBS, it was, think of how limiting that is, you know? Right. Uh, so it just, and it's a benefit to everybody to be able to to have different perspectives, different creative minds at work like this. I think it's great. And I think we've also, you know, Jen, you wrote a piece this year about how we've seen women kind of getting fed up with stagnant relationships on TV shows. And I think that's been interesting to watch just in terms of, you know, how how women are portrayed on television. Could, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean... And I think what's interesting about it, too, is that it's it's being done, and I'm thinking about Insecure, um, as I say this, in a way where everybody, every character involved has some dimension, you know? I mean, Issa Rae's character on that show, Issa, is, she's fed up with her boyfriend, especially early in the season, for, for reasons that um, you can kind of understand, but the more you get to know his character, you understand his perspective, too, and I think... You know, it used to be that it would just be it would be a very lopsided kind of argument, but they're they're taking the time to really flesh out all the characters so that you can see that nothing is one person's fault or another person's fault, that this is a complex situation playing itself out. So I think I I mean, I think and I think that's what, you know, whether you're a man or a woman or whatever, like you want to see that, you you Mm -hmm. know, like that's. That's good for everybody. Well, I like I always appreciate it when a TV show um, doesn't uh, flatter the main character too much. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. shows that I tend to have a really allergic reaction to are the shows, and it used to be that Fox put on a lot of them, and there were uh, there were some on other networks, but I remember Fox being especially bad, where the main character is kind of horrible. Yeah, horrible, and and, and, and I, way, I, you know that they, I think people still talk about TV characters that way. But yeah, it's become more nuanced. It has become more nuanced, but like the kind of thing, like you know, I think Dennis Leary's shows were were prime examples, are prime examples yeah. of this, where it's like, oh yeah, you know, he's dr- he's a drunk, he's a drug addict, he's you know, he's kind of, his life is kind of a shambles, but he's still kind of awesome. He's so kind of awesome, you know? <laughs> yeah. He's the greatest firefighter in all, of all time. He's the greatest, you know, the greatest cop. He's the, you know, he's a rock and roll musician who's still got it 
you know, and yeah. like, and they'll do things like they'll do that kind of like I guess I call it sitcom humble bragging, where it's like they'll, they'll present him like uh, picking up some twenty year old in a bar as as like a sign of how pathetic he is. But yeah, in actuality, the shows like go Dennis Leary, right? And the, I think that <laughs> right. that is you are seeing kind of the opposite where we're seeing characters that are super likable but then as you get to know them you're like oh I don't like that about you and it's mm-hmm. a very in a very human way like I felt that with Jane the Virgin a bit where you know Jane is like this great you know likable person but I think she's can be kind of awful and super judgmental of other people and a little bit selfish and it all feels very human though it doesn't feel like they're villainizing her yeah but and the same thing with Issa Rae's character she's great but she crazy has all crazy ex-girlfriend same mm-hmm. thing so it's and Fleabag too. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Exactly. I mean, that's a character who does a lot of pretty uh, questionable and 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 like explicitly, like you're saying, the kind of stuff that if it were a guy, you'd be like, "Wow, that's pretty cool." And mm-hmm. she kind of thinks she's pretty cool <laughs> at certain <laughs> moments in there. But then, as you start chipping it away at her facade, you understand that there's something more going on there. Uh, and that's I don't know. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and also the shows are a lot of these shows are much better than TV shows used to be about showing you how not only do they get the, beyond this idea that the characters like everything that bad uh, that happens to the characters is the world's fault and not theirs, they've gone beyond that, and it's not even a matter of saying well they're responsible for some of their own misfortune and their mistakes. They're giving you that, and then they're going a step further and showing you like the social context, the political and economic context for the lives of these characters, and like how much of the forces that shape them are not just a matter of like who their parents were, but also like what neighborhood they lived in. Atlanta, I think, was especially good about that. Yeah. And and you know, I don't think there's a show on TV uh, that gave you such a sense of what it means to struggle from paycheck to paycheck as that show did. I mean, like, even the people who are outwardly successful on that show have to hustle. Yeah, you don't usually see that kind of thing on television. No, and, and, you know, there's some talk about uh, race and discrimination on that show, but a lot of it is implied. It's just accepted as part of the context for the story. Yeah, though that Juneteenth episode is really amazing in how it deals Mm -hmm. with race in a way that, you know, as my coworker D. Lockett was saying, you know, Atlanta and a lot of other shows are not trying to talk to white audiences. A lot of it is just kind of very, very black things, as she put it, that you might not even get as a white audience member, but the show has so embedded in it where there's a lot of, you know, the whole Juneteenth culture is not something that I think the average American is familiar with, but... It's just there. There's an entire episode of TV about it now, and it's great. It's and that's great. one of the things yeah. I loved about Blackish right out of the gate is that Blackish is a, is a variation on a kind of sitcom that you've seen done over and over and over again, but with a white family, mm-hmm. and also you know in an early era by a black family with the Cosby Show, you know. But um, mm-hmm. but the way they tell the story is different in that it takes an almost Seinfeldian uh, point of view on the world it's presenting it's not it's not like hey white people let me tell you about my world it's more like you ever notice how people get treated differently depending on their skin tone or have you ever noticed this about you know uh kids from poor neighborhoods coming to middle class neighborhoods on halloween because they have a shot at getting more candy and like you know it's like and it's these are things that are undeniably true but they're not things that were necessarily presented as something anyone would get Right. And it just and it just makes you respond differently to a show. 
it makes you it makes you like want to get it you know and it makes and you it, more interested. it makes you more interested and 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 uh, the more shows adopt this kind of storytelling style like they're dealing with a very specific way of living and way of seeing the world but they're presenting as if it's universal like i really believe that if you say something enough times people will start to embrace it and you know if you say this is universal this is universal this is universal eventually i think people will start to think that it is and it will be yeah another show i think that has been very uneven but i like it when it's on is the mindy project and i i loved her episode the coconut episode that was great it's that was a great you know i i thought this just came to my mind because i because of what we're talking about but also i just thought it was such a great way of her responding to criticism of herself which has been that she doesn't deal with race enough on her show yeah and she's been heavily criticized for that and this was such an honest way of dealing with it where by being like i'm brown on the outside but i'm white on the inside and that is something she's on the episode she spends it with other indian people and she is kind of someone calls her a coconut and she's like wait that's what i am and it kind of acknowledges it within her own world though right of like without kind of having to it was just it was just such a smart way of addressing criticism in a way that's like yeah this this is who i am but like it was just it wasn't trying to be like hey now i'm dealing with race it was no. being like Hey, this is—I don't know. I'm this is sorry. something that—it's this is something that yeah. comes up, and and here and here and here. Let's all look at it. Right, right. Yeah, and it kind of got at a very like immigrant perspective of like feeling kind of stuck between two cultures, and it the 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 critiques of her I feel like are always so like well this is your duty to be doing this. Yes. But the way she dealt with it was being like this is who I am, and I hear your criticism, but this is also. This is this is a way of responding to it that kind of gets at what she's being critiqued for, but also being like there's actually a, a vocabulary around this that is not like is not as simple as you just your your criticism. I, I it's hard yes. for me to put it. I know what you I know, exactly, but I know but, what you mean. Yeah. I know, and I and I sense that too. Um, I sense that too. And yeah, that show. I I find I get so frustrated with it because I think it. It, the episodes where it stops being an office comedy, I like it more because it it's such a it's just a show about Mindy. Yeah. And I think if it just embraced kind of that side of itself, where it is kind of more in the vein of uh, Louis, or it should be, where it's kind of following this one person, but instead it tries to be an office comedy and it yeah. doesn't quite work. And whenever she goes off and does her own thing on that show, I just find it to be much more interesting. But that's that's a show I still have a soft spot for, and I hope will continue to be. Well, an- another thing that I've noticed about this year that made it so distinctive is, um, and it's kind of related to what we've dis- been discussing, which is um, geography and a sense of place. Mm. I've seen a lot more shows. Like one of the things that used to drive me crazy about TV shows was they, in theory, they were set in seattle or new york or you know cincinnati or wherever but it was just a freaking soundstage in burbank and occasionally they would do some like cutaway to stock footage of the city that thing that the show was supposedly set in but you it felt like it was set in no place like it was set in tv land mm-hmm. 
And that's really starting to change in a major noticeable way to the point where the, a lot of these shows feel like little independent films that shot in the neighborhoods where people actually live and work. And in fact, that's kind of what's happening. And of course, there's a flood of like Brooklyn shows and L.A. shows, and, and many of those are quite good and quite specific. Like they're specific to a neighborhood. Right. They're not trading on a general L.A. stereotype of like bubble-headed people who've had plastic surgery. And it's not the general... You know, no, you uh, have like love in the Netflix show Love, yeah, Silver Lake, and you have Insecure, which is in Inglewood, and right. I, I think mostly the LA shows are now trending towards the Silver Lake area. Yeah, although yeah, although not exclusively. not exclusively, and 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 then you've also got um, a bunch of great shows set in the in the uh, uh, the non sort of like stereotypically hillbilly version of the American South. You know, you got the period piece version mm-hmm. with Quarry, which is fantastic. And, uh, and you know, Queen Sugar, which is an, a predominantly African-American look at that. And there they have a whole range of people across different classes, everybody from, like, very wealthy to poor and struggling. And then you've got Atlanta, which we've talked about. And then uh, Rectify. Right. You know, I mean, that's amazing, too. And and I think uh, the, the way that uh, equipment, the equipment that they use to make these shows has come down so much, not just in price, but in size. Like it used to be that if you're shooting a TV drama, it was 35 millimeter film, and that's very unwieldy, complicated, expensive, and the cameras are big. And even if you were shooting on 16 millimeter, that's still it's still a, a complex mechanical process. And almost all of these shows now are being done digitally, and they're, and a lot of them aren't even using like the big cameras that they use to film Hollywood films. They're using cameras that are s- smaller than a fanny pack. Mm-hmm. I mean, to the point where a lot of these shows are stealing shots. They're not even getting permits to shoot out on the street. They're just miking up their actors. It's like, all right, go stand across the street in front of that yogurt shop and do the scene. And they do a few takes, and it's like, did you get it? Yeah, I got it. All right, now let's now let's go to the uh, let's go to the park and do the next scene. Yeah. And it's exactly the way you would shoot, like a, not just an indie film, but a student film. You know, they're oh. stealing shots and like stuff like Mr. Robot, which looks great. Like that looks like a David Fincher movie, and like. You know, the crews on these things are a lot smaller than you than you would think they are. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's contributing to a lot of this sense of regional specificity, cultural specificity, because you don't have to have an army of people moving from place to place and it's costing you like a hundred you know, two hundred fifty thousand dollars, half a million dollars, five million dollars for a single episode, you're doing it for the price of a used car. That's why Louis was able to exercise so much control over his show because he cut a deal with FX where they said as long as the budget doesn't go over a certain amount, for some reason like a quarter of a million dollars, including post-production, kind of springs mm-hmm. to mind, I might be wrong about that, you can have final cut. And he said, yeah, I can do that. I mean, in fact, he not only could he do that, that was a very comfortable margin for him. <laughs> you know, because yeah. things are just so, there's, it's just so much more like, with each passing day, filmmaking becomes more like writing or painting. You know, we're not there yet. But we are going to get to the point where it's like it's not that much different than like making a collage out of a torn up piece of paper and some glue and a canvas <laughs> to make a short film, you know? Yeah. We're really And what close. you're talking about to me is it's, it's a different kind of diversity, really, because it's a, yeah. it's a diversity of setting mm-hmm. uh, where, you know, these shows like, for example, Bloodline, where every time I watch that show, I feel like I'm in the keys because it's just there's just a palpable sense of it yeah um or sh- or a show like better call saul where i mean i've never actually even been to new mexico but i feel like i have <laughs> from watching that and from watching breaking bad um mm-hmm. and i have to say you know as a dc native and resident 
I really would love to see a show set in this town that is not about government. Uh, I mean, the Americans kind of isn't, but that that because DC is about so much else that never is captured in popular culture. Yeah. I would love to see what you're talking about happening where we're seeing different sections of LA that aren't stereotypical LA. I would love someone to do that here in DC because there's so much going on. Um, somebody make a show about the DC punk movement for heaven's sake, like something right. um, different. I could, I'm just putting that out there in case anyone's listening that would want to. <laughs> I would love, to, I would love to see a period piece, a drama set in uh, Washington D.C. in uh, middle class to poor African American neighborhoods in the shadow of our government. Mm-hmm. And you could do that now. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah. I yeah, I just, I just feel so incredibly hopeful and and enthused about television right now, and. Uh, you know, I think it's gotten to the point where the cultural do- the cultural dominance of television, scripted television over scripted movies, is so is so complete that it's not even a contest. And that's not to say that you know. And I get into this argument with my friends who are exclusively or mainly film critics. They're very tired and hostile and defensive about this. And I'm sorry, but it's true. It's true. Um, for a particular kind of film, like you know, like a, a not like basically a linear character driven. Um, observational sort of story or a genre story like TV is kicking the shit out of movies Real, like across the board it's not even close and it some of it has to do with the, the way the the medium delivers its stories like it's just more it fits people's lives better you can watch it whenever you want you can watch it in pieces you can watch it like five episodes at a time or one or half an episode the storytelling changes a little bit but I don't think it's any less valid like just because you're not making people sit there for two hours and digest an uninterrupted story doesn't mean that the story you are telling is necessarily not as inherently worthy of being told. Mm-hmm. You know, I just think that's a fallacy. Um, and also, no, I think that like formally television storytelling is not as sophisticated as the peak of, of uh, 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 cinema. But cinema has had a 50-year head start. You know, it's had right. a 50-year head start, and television is where uh, cinema was in about, you know, the late 60s, early 70s right now. And uh, who knows what's coming? It's going to be unbelievable. I completely agree with you. Uh, at the same time, this whole notion that film is dead, I find, is a ridiculous idea, too. I mean, just whenever you go at, at either extreme on that argument to me, it's like kind of silly. But the one thing I do find that I appreciate about going to the movies right now is is that it is it forces you to shut out everything else. Yes. Uh, and that's not a that's not a commentary on the art itself, um, but more commentary on when you're watching things at home or wherever you might be. It's just so much more easy to get interrupted or even to enable yourself to interrupt yourself. Like, you know what? I need to check an email. Whereas mm-hmm. in a movie theater, you just have to push everything else out of the way. Well, if you're uh, not a jerk, you do. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't want to get kicked out of the theater, in you theory. Know. So, I mean, that's that's the one thing about the movie-going experience that to me feels more and more sacred each each day for that reason. But, but yes, in terms of the storytelling and even in terms of just... You feel it in the culture. Just when people are talking about something, they're almost always talking about TV shows. Right after my interview for this job, I went uh, to go just get a bite to eat, and I sat down, and there was a bunch of people sitting next to me, and they were all talking about Breaking Bad. I'm like, wow, okay. <laughs> so yeah. it's just it's just all around you. That's what I people heard, are talking about. I heard people at a restaurant. I went to Dallas to visit my dad, and I took my kids to my favorite uh, my favorite restaurant there, this uh, uh, kind of burger joint called Snuffers. And the ta- two tables away, there were people arguing about the ending of The Sopranos. 
Wow. Which aired ten years. Which aired ten <laughs> Era years ago. Living in. Ten freaking years ago, yeah. and they were arguing about this. I overheard a couple people talking about just how much anxiety they have over TV now because they're like, if I don't mm-hmm. keep on on top of everything, I can't have conversations with people because I don't have anything to contribute. Yes, and that's another you know <laughs> thing that's happening. Yeah, yeah, that's no, cool because we need more anxieties. Yeah, we, we need do, to invent we more. Do. We do, but there is something, yeah, there is something to be said, like you were saying, Jen, for, for the for the singularity and sacredness of the theatrical experience. And, and, and when I, I do cherish uh, going to a movie, a properly screened movie, and a lot of movies are not properly screened, like the picture and the sound are poor. Um, but when you mm-hmm. see a movie that's presented correctly with an audience that is involved, like they don't have to be quiet like it's church, but they, I, I like them to be responding to the movie and not to like, you know, not, re, you know, doing Snapchat or some crap like mm-hmm. that. Um, it is great. And, and I saw this uh, Denzel Washington adaptation of Fences recently. Oh, yeah. Which is which so I, good. I'm so telling good. you, see it. Just see it and see it in a theater. Don't wait for it. Go, don't look at it and go like, oh, it's a play. I'll wait for it to be on TV. It's like, no, this is a movie. This is a movie. Like, he puts the camera way far back, and you feel like you're seeing in this amazing outdoor theatrical production. And he holds the shots, and you're watching the actors move around in space, and every shot means something, every movement means something, and you have to concentrate on this thing to really to really appreciate how great it is. And uh, I don't know that people would sit still for something like that's told that way Yeah. if you were watching it on your iPad or your phone. So there are some ways in which movies have still... I think uh, uh, they they have higher standards than TV for attention, um, mm-hmm. but they also are I- extremely compromised and sloppy in a lot of ways that the best TV is not. So we'll be talking about all the great new shows of 2017 early next year. Coming up, Matt will talk to Rectify creator Ray McKinnon, but first a word from our sponsors. I'm pleased to welcome back Ray McKinnon, the creator and head writer of Rectify. This Sundance Channel series charts the impact on one small-town Georgia community of the release of convicted murderer and rapist Daniel Holden. Set free on a technicality, he struggles to adjust to a freedom that he hasn't enjoyed in nearly 20 years and that could be taken from him at any moment by the same authorities who imprisoned him in the first place. The show is finishing its run, just finished its run after four amazing seasons. And I have uh, Ray here on the phone. Hello. Hey, Ray, it's Matt. Hey, Matt, how are you, buddy? Doing great. Good to talk to you again. You too. Good to, good to be talked to and talked with. <laughs> I do want to get into uh, how you handled the issue of Aiden's uh, guilt or innocence first. So um, a big question on this show that uh, audiences wanted to know was, did he do it? And I, and we've talked about this before in a previous interview, and I, and I think we're both in agreement that that's not the primary area of interest for the show, but you did kind of make an attempt to answer that in the finale. And I wondered if you could just begin by telling us how you, how you handled that. Like what, what exactly do you think is the resolution of that for, for people in the audience who really want to know? I did. I I made an attempt to answer that. Well, I, is that your interpretation of, of what you saw in that? Yeah, well, that I episode. Uh, no, I here's what I here's what I got. I I felt like it's never concrete, but it is suggested that he didn't. That he did not. Yes. Yes. And and would you agree? Would yes. Would you agree that that's an accurate representation of? 
Well, it certainly seemed from the the version that I saw, which I think was the final version, that that yeah, that would be the interpretation I would get out of it. But yeah, uh, I, I think you know, uh, as in life, there 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 are th- some things we shall never know, and and uh, and there's there's still a great mystery in life, and and uh, and I think sometimes. That mystery uh, doesn't have to be resolved in in, uh, in our reflections of life through fiction, uh, and I feel like the the show is what it is, and uh, it it uh, left some things maybe not totally clear in different people's subjective interpretations of of the meanings of that. Um, is uh, you know I couldn't argue against that. I mean I, I don't. I don't know that uh, me explaining what I meant at the time when I wrote it uh, versus how I feel about it now versus how I'll feel about it 10 years is, uh, you know, there's no no definitive interpretation. And, and I think in some ways that even includes mine. I, I, I must say that I, I really am very, very grateful that you stuck to your guns on this point. I mean, I felt like you, it, my feeling was I felt like you maybe gave the audience a little bit more in that direction than, than perhaps you had originally intended to, but at no point did you spell anything out or, or, and you never allowed the show to become about that. And I was afraid that you, I, I was afraid that you would, I was afraid that you were going to have to do that. Like maybe if you would be pressured from above or by the needs of the audience or whatever, but you never really did that doing a, a serial story, one that continues on, uh, certainly the, the making of it continues on for, for literally years, and uh, you you begin to accumulate both collaborators and and people who uh, have some, feel like they do, and they, they do have some ownership in the story, and that, you know, that's everybody from the actors to the other writers to uh, to the audience to the to the critics you know everybody you start feeling a, a kind of pressure and, and an expectation of of different people and uh, and that's not invalid and that's something that I didn't uh, close off my mind and my ears to however uh, at the end of the day you know as I'm uh, in that room by myself with uh, with that computer and the, the keystrokes, uh, I have to, you know, ultimately be true to what what is going on in my head and my gut and and uh, some of those things over over the years because of the collaborative nature of the story and, and because what I was being given back by uh, particularly the actors and, and me bearing witness to that on the set day after day. Uh, it, it it evolved. The story evolved. The show evolved, as it as I believe it should, because you can sometimes stick to your guns, and the guns are not the, you know, not aiming in the right direction. <laughs> uh, so, so uh, I certainly felt pressure the last episode. To uh, there were lots of expectations floating around, and I could hear them, and and uh, and I felt that. But but ultimately, I just had to. You know, go somewhere and be quiet and and try to be, try to be true, uh, to you know, and then, then once I realized that and I found what I I felt was true uh, for the uh, the final episode, uh, it, it it was a 
well, I wouldn't say it was effortless, but it, but I, I never looked back. It's interesting that as you headed into the final stretch of episodes, it seemed to me that the big question was not whether we would get an answer about whether Daniel is guilty of the crimes that he went to prison for, but rather what would become of these characters as a result of the fallout of his being released from prison. And Daniel, of course, being at the center of it, uh, most of all, because the, you know there's this question of how does a guy who has gone for nearly two decades with no freedom uh, adjust to having it, um, but also the other characters as well. Um, and I detected, I guess, I don't know, maybe redemption is the wrong word, but there were, there seemed like there was more hope and more light in this last season than there had been at any point leading up. I didn't think of this story and this last season as, as one of redemption as much as I thought of it for everybody, including Daniel, as, you know, four, four human beings, generally speaking, and... and in real life, and that's how we approached all these characters, as, as if they were real people, to to move beyond uh, some traumatic event or beyond some life-changing experience, and, and they have to figure out a way to uh, uh, come to terms with it, to to un- unburden themselves of, of the of the weight of it, and uh, that that weight was represented in, in many different ways, and, and Janet specifically, and that she kept everything from her past, and uh, because she couldn't let go of the past, and, and uh, the metaphor of her cleaning out the attic and the and the garage were, you know, part of her happy or and sometimes difficult unburdening. Um, that was a powerful scene. The the one the cleaning the out yeah the, yeah yes, yeah 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 I I think yeah I think we can all identify you know to some degree how uh, we're attached to things and how those things have meaning because of who gave them to us or how they were you know what experience we had when we were around them and uh, yeah I think Jared was a great uh, tool for his mother to to you know because he. He didn't have the kind of baggage that the rest of the family had to, to be able to help, you know, give her strength and guide her to, to her unburdening. But, but back to your, you know, the, the redemption or, or perhaps the, the optimism uh, of, of this season, um, you know, as I, as I got deeper into the characters, into the show, into uh, kind of the philosophy of, of life, uh, even though we 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 all are uh, know with, or or most of us do know undeniably we're gonna we're gonna die, we're we're <laughs> we're gonna cease to exist in this in this realm. Uh, we continue to live in this realm with uh, some optimism, and that's you know part of part of our human you know nature and and uh, and I think uh, every you know most every character and certainly Daniel first and foremost was able to tap into uh, something that he hasn't felt in a long time, and that, that would certainly be optimism. You've, you've been a writer for a long time, but have you ever spent an, uh, an uninterrupted stretch of this length living inside the world of the same characters? Oh, no. This is the longest job I've held in my life. You know? <laughs> it's like... I had to, I had to be a semi-adult some of the time. I had to go show up at places and, and show up daily and and uh, and uh, pretend to be some kind of uh, figure of authority or, uh, or or let them know that 
that I was as unqualified as anybody. But yes, it definitely was the longest, and and uh, and that kind of chronic immersion uh, um, certainly uh, uh, was on on one level. Uh, it forced me to have a kind a different kind of endurance and and patience that I that I probably don't have in other experience work experiences. But then on the other level, it it just allowed you to go deeper and deeper and deeper into these characters and and, uh, and explore them in ways that that you couldn't possibly do in a in a you know hour and 48 minute show movie or something I was I was really struck by um, this has always been true of the show but particularly this season uh, the monologues and the and the long scenes of dialogue where one person is talking and the other person is mainly listening which I almost feel like are kind of stealth monologues sometimes. Uh, you really, you really went deep with that, and and you know particularly uh, uh, with Aiden Young, who consistently was given what I thought were very, very difficult uh, extended soliloquies almost, and uh, I almost felt like I was watching a show within a show when he was speaking, about, you know, about his experience and his memories and everything. Right. Um, that's very astute, and, and uh, I, you know, I, I think. Uh, a lot of my writing is is not necessarily uh, uh, analytical. It it's it it feels more visceral and and intuitive. But certainly, one becomes informed over over time of of what actors can handle what material. And uh, and you know, for some actors, that would have would have been too much for them. Uh, Aiden's an extraordinary actor, both in his ability to to tap into emotion and his technique and his ability and and work ethic and in taking the time to really learn the lines and there was never a time that I gave him more than than his talent and craft uh, uh, could handle and that's a you know that's a very fortunate thing to have when you're when you're working in a long form like this and there were certain, many of the other actors all most all of the other actors were in that that realm as well but uh, I, I've worked as an actor on, on a couple of television shows and you, you do you know the the writers do write to the actors abilities sometimes the whole uh, subplot with Daniel and Chloe particularly in the beginning seemed to almost be to me uh, an instance of the show coming to terms with what it was doing as a show, like without without being too meta about it. But you know, here's here's a guy who is uh, admiring artists, and he's being drawn to art. Uh, he's being drawn to artists, and he's discovering the the power of self expression. That's what I got out of some of that. Right, a little bit. Am I <laughs> am I reading too much into it, or? Uh, no, is that no, no? I, um, you know, you think about Daniel Holden as an 18-year-old, and you think uh, what he might have become had this traumatic event not happened and happened to him. And uh, you, you feel like he would have been, and, and still is, uh, on some level, a seeker. And, and I think, you know, that's part, partly what artists are. They're seekers, and... And they're continuing to try to explore their their own existence and to express themselves uh, through their art forms. And uh, it, it's uh, no wonder that that, that appealed to Daniel. 
And, but it also challenged Daniel because it made him feel and it made him, you know, anytime Daniel would feel some kind of possibilities of the future, he would also feel the pain of the past. Mm. And, and that was, you know, that was his conundrum. Uh, so he chose not to feel or, or hope for a future and therefore he, he couldn't feel the, the great disappointment of the past. And, and eventually through Chloe and, and others, you know, throughout the seasons, really, he found the strength and, and had enough love for mothers to really begin the, the, the long journey of trying to heal somewhat uh, from his past. How are you? How are you feeling now that the show is concluded? I mean, on a human level, do you feel glad that you are you are you happy with it? Are you uh, are you glad to uh, to have it done? Do you wish you had another season? What What does it feel uh, like? Well, you know, I I go walk the dog and and bring the garbage cans back from the road and just do a lot of. Uh, everyday life things and and I'm not uh, I'm not bored with that uh, it's it's been a, a nearly all-consuming uh, four years uh, and, um, and that's the way it had to be for me and, and I think for for most people who are trying to hand build with others you know this long-running kind of storytelling and I was very ready to to as, as I say sometimes, get off the, the soapbox or, you know, stop being the preacher and, and go sit down and, and listen and be quiet for a while. And, and, uh, and I, I was really ready for that. And the, the day it was over, I, I didn't, I, I, I felt both relief and, and uh, on, on some level, a kind of satisfaction with, uh, with what I'd been, the opportunities I'd been given and, and what we all, uh, made out of that you know speaking of the sermons and soapboxes um i i know you were a little you seemed a little uncomfortable with this the last time i interviewed you about the show but the the the, the spiritual language the the sort of theological imagery all of that was a very big part of the show and i and i and i wondered if you could maybe talk about that again just now that now that you're out of the woods as it were, um, how important was that, and how important is uh, spirituality or faith to you as a writer, as a, you know, as uh, someone generating fiction? Well, I I don't think uh, it, it it was very difficult for me to become a, a public writer. Uh, it, it was very difficult for me to to you know to I had a great fear of failure uh, as a younger person and. And anytime anybody intimated a, a kind of uh, negativity or criticism, uh, I, it was a great excuse for me to, to give up. And, and so uh, it was a long journey for me and to come to the point where I was able to and willing to uh, put my stuff out there for uh, criticism, both positive and negative. And part of that journey had to do with you had to have a kind of faith, you know, you had to to have a belief and, and uh, belief in others or something greater than you for your purpose hmm. uh, here. And so I, I'm sure that's, uh, that's well, I know that's played a huge part in me being an artist uh, because if I just depend upon 
my own belief in myself, uh, it will uh, ultimately fail me. On a reflecting the human condition uh, level and, and, and what part of what Rectify was and, and part of that reflection being set in a small southern town um, and trying to be somewhat true to that place, faith and, and religion should have been a part of it. And my hope was to portray that in a, a more dimensionalized way. And it wasn't the main story. And it, you know, it was just a part of the, the fabric of the story. Tawny certainly was the touchstone for that. And uh, I was about to mention her. Yeah. Yeah. Wanted to, wanted to do as do right by that as best I could and as best the, you know, the other writers and collaborators could. In Tawny's story, particularly, there are moments where I sensed uh, that the show is kind of drawing an analogy between the community building of faith and the community building of art, you know, in the sense that people are telling each other their stories, and that's how hmm. empathetic connections are made. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, particularly the stuff with her and Zeke. I mean, I, I found that tremendously moving. That's great. That whole that, sequence. That and and the way that she, throughout the run of the show, it seemed like she lost her faith and then she gradually gained it. It felt, seemed to me, gained it back to an extent through her interactions with Zeke. Yes, that is that is all true. And, and uh, you know, there's so many great storylines to try to service in... in uh, and even though we had four years, obviously we didn't do a lot of shows, but it seemed like a lot to me, by the way. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, we could have done a story where, where Tawny was the, the lead character of the show, or Teddy, or Janet, or Ted, or, you know, or, or certainly Amantha. Um, but uh, so we had, you know, we had limited times to tell very complex stories. On the, the macro of Tawny, I always was... Tr- I'd always hoped that I could show someone who had a certain, uh, perhaps uh, less mature uh, kind of faith and, and have that faith uh, rocked and, and challenged. And then, and then through a journey, she could, she could come around and, and, and have a deeper kind of faith. That was, that was always the hope. And uh, we, uh, this year, was, we talked a lot about that in the writer's room, and, and we created this storyline between her and Zeke and you know it was a really challenging storyline and uh, because you have a guy in a bed uh, and through the help of the actors and the writers and the editors uh, I'm, I'm glad to hear that for some people it, it's uh, it resonated well it was tremendously uh, 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 moving for me and uh I don't normally thank people for the work that they do, but I wanted to thank you for it. I, I felt like I understood myself a little better after having watched this show. Well, that's very kind of you to say. I, you know, that's uh, I've said jokingly said that this was a a, a very expensive form of therapy for me. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry. Don't don't tell Sundance and AMC that. But uh, yeah, it's uh, you know I'm. I'm, I'm sure most of what I've uh, written has been partly f- for me to maybe have a deeper understanding of the human condition and and certainly individually my own condition. Mm. And uh, this this is was the 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 greatest and best uh, opportunity to uh, to explore all of that. 
Well, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much. And uh, congratulations uh, on uh, finishing it and finishing it as well as you did. Well, thank you for uh, for your your reflections back to to me and to our show. And uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's as I've said before, with when you don't have a huge audience and, and you don't have good uh, tastemaker response, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. So we we owe a lot to the tastemakers of of uh, of television and for uh, for the reason we were able to tell the story as long as we did. Mm. So thank you, sir. Take care of yourself. That's just about it for this week's show. But before we go, it's time for this week's Aria. A couple of weeks ago, I wrote a piece about This Is Us, the NBC drama that has been widely and warmly embraced by viewers since it debuted in September. The series is a thoughtful look at an extended family in which flawed people, both black and white, try their best to do right by each other. In the current cultural and political climate, it's exactly the kind of show we need. But as I argued in the article, it's also the kind of show that practices what I refer to as comfortable progressiveness. It tackles serious issues, particularly with regard to race, but does so in a way that often avoids getting real. It's true that This Is Us has acknowledged the racial issues that arise when white parents try to raise a black child, I wrote in my piece. But most of the time, the show depicts Rebecca and Jack these are the parents of white biological twins, Kevin and Kate, and adopted black son, Randall, as the kind of good, upstanding, progressive white folk who won't make anyone watching NBC on a Tuesday night feel uncomfortable. What's disappointing is that we so rarely see Rebecca or Jack confronting their own unconscious biases or sense of privilege, I said later in the piece. It's disappointing because This Is Us has established itself as a show that's thoughtful enough to explore that territory. It could go further down the road it's traveling. It just keeps choosing to turn the car around. It's even more disappointing because, as the recent presidential election results have shown, many white people in America seem very capable of overlooking racism on scales large and small without ever bothering to consider what this says about the flickers of prejudice in their own hearts. This Is Us is exactly the kind of show that could shine a light on the need for further self-examination on this point, but so far, it hasn't. As I expected, the piece drew mixed responses. Some readers told me on social media that, while they enjoyed the show, they had been thinking similar thoughts. Others said I was contradicting myself. Paragraph four, the popular show is just what a divided American needs right now, tweeted one person. Paragraph five on, the show should be more divisive. For the record, I never used the word divisive. I did say it should be more honest and brave, which, in theory, shouldn't divide anyone. Others seem to question why I would even take the time to explore these issues in connection with This Is Us, a viewpoint reflected in this tweet. People still write articles about insufficient progressiveness in sappy TV shows for middle-aged women? Hashtag old. The most valuable feedback I got was from a former co-worker who happens to be a father to two adopted white children and an adopted black daughter. He didn't disagree with my piece. He said he watches This Is Us and considers himself both a fan and a critic of the way these issues are handled. He gave me permission to share some of the thoughts he shared with me on Facebook, including the following. White parents that decide to adopt a black child consider themselves very enlightened to begin with. And then, over time, according to our experience and others' experiences, you realize you have not begun in your white life to probe the depths of what it means to be black in America, and you will never fully understand it, nor have you begun to confront your own prejudice, bias, and racist tendencies, and to be saddened and horrified by them, and then wonder how in the world will you ever get other people to have that perspective because not everybody in America can parent a black child. That all gets real heavy real fast. The show could do a lot more with that. A lot. But still, the show is there and it is a start. 
He added, my overall thought is that if the show were as honest and raw as it could be, or even approach that level, it would be too much for the audience and it might have never been made or certainly would not be a hit. I think we are seeing the limits of television. There are only so many episodes and it can't be so jarring or uncomfortable that a general audience won't support it. So I think my bottom line is not much different than your bottom line. We need more on all of these issues. But this is us as a start, and a start is huge. I have thought about all of this a lot. I don't think my Facebook friend is wrong when he says that a more raw version of the show might be too much for some viewers to take. I also value what he says about a show like This Is Us being a start. If you're a parent raising a child of another race or ethnicity, being able to watch a network series that reflects that experience, even if it's a softer version of that experience, is incredibly meaningful. But I also worry, as I said in my piece, that when things are softened too much, yes, even on a sappy show for middle-aged women, hashtag old, we close our eyes and ears to reality. And that can be dangerous, and I think has proven itself to be dangerous. It is true that This Is Us, which shows us black and white people who love each other and are literally family, is exactly the kind of show we need and even crave right now. But it's also a show that is building an audience at a time when hate crimes are on the rise, when white supremacists feel emboldened enough to publicly vocalize their hatred without shame, and when our political leaders aren't saying or doing nearly enough to condemn this behavior. To touch on race, but to do it so gently, feels like a missed opportunity. I believe there's a way for the show to have some more honest dialogue about, for example, why Rebecca hid for decades the fact that she knew who Randall's birth father was. She has said she feared that Randall would be taken away from his adoptive parents if Randall and his father, William, formed a connection, but I believe there's a racial component to her misgivings as well. Randall could talk to his mom about that in a way that confronts the issue, but isn't so out of whack with the show's tone that it will make viewers spit out their chamomile tea. Maybe he will when the show returns next month. Whenever I or any critic or writer engages with a TV show in this way, we invariably hear the argument, calm down, it's just a TV show, which is basically the equivalent of saying, stop taking so seriously the thing that you are paid to specifically take seriously. Even if I wasn't getting paid to do what I do, I would still believe that scripted TV can have a major impact on how we view others and even how we treat others. And now that its landscape is so vast, we have higher expectations than we did even five or 10 years ago for all the shows that we watch. So many of the series we see on basic or premium cable, as well as via streaming services, do not play it safe on matters of race or anything else. The more we watch shows on our own time, on different platforms, without regard to where they originated, the more we begin to hold all of them to the same standard. Once upon a time, we expected an HBO series to be a bit more daring than something we saw on NBC or ABC, and we still do. But now that we're toggling between HBO Go and Hulu, which is where a lot of viewers may consume This Is Us, the idea that the two are different is starting to disappear. The network of origin becomes more and more irrelevant. That's something that everyone who's making TV right now, whether they're on the writing staff of This Is Us or some other series, has to consider more and more in the coming years. In a lot of ways, right now it may be harder to work on a network show. Even though the budget and reach may be greater, there are hoops that still have to be jumped through on a mainstream series that the makers of a show for Amazon, Netflix, HBO, or FX can, it seems, more easily bypass. Still, across the board on television right now, there seems to be a heightened sense of ambition and a stronger desire to start conversations. This Is Us has started conversation, and that is much appreciated. But starting conversations is the easy part. Furthering them and pushing the audience to think and feel more deeply is much, much harder. I hope that when This Is Us returns in January, it figures out how to do that in a way that feels consistent with the show's sensibility. 
I hope that for the sake of people like my Facebook friend and his children who are seeing their family situation reflected on television in a way that's at least more truthful than the different strokes version. And I hope that for the sake of all of us who want television that can be heartwarming and challenging in the same hour. That's it for this week's show. The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Sam Dingman and Jordan Bell. Laura Mayer is our director of production and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. I'm Gazella Mami, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellephant. I'm Matt Zoller Sites, and you can find me, shockingly, at Matt Zoller Sites. And I'm Jen Cheney, and you can find me on Twitter at Cheney J. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>